Introduction. This is a remarkable story of survival against the odds, of Morris Schnitzer's odyssey in occupied Western Europe during the Nazi occupation. What makes his narrative compelling is that he manages to negotiate the myriad hazards of life on the run with very little outside help, relying on his instincts to make the right decisions and learning from his mistakes. Morris's father, Hermann, had been part of the mass migration of Jews from Tsarist Russia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the decades before World War I. The majority left Europe for North America, but a significant number settled in Western European states and formed the basis for the Eastern European Orthodox Jewish communities in major cities there. Emigrating from the Galician town of Rosniatov in 1908, when he was only 14 years old, Hermann travelled to Germany and began earning a living, like many of his contemporaries, by peddling goods door to door. Unlike his contemporaries and his father before him, he rapidly moved on from this rather marginal existence to establishing himself as a wholesaler and was soon earning enough to bring his brothers and sisters to join him in Germany. Hermann's loyalty to his adopted country was completed when he enlisted in the German armed forces during World War I, seeing action on the Eastern Front and spending some time in Russian captivity as a prisoner of war. Returning to an economically shattered Germany at the end of the war, he nevertheless established a successful retail business, choosing to settle not in one of the major urban Jewish centres, but in the coal mining town of Wattenscheid in the Ruhr Valley. Here, his family was part of a very small and disparate Jewish community, but ostensibly well integrated into the locality. He contracted a marriage with Rosa Heller on a visit to Rosiatov, now part of Poland, in 1921, and brought his wife and mother-in-law back to Germany. His three sons, Morris, 1922, Edmund, 1923, and Benno, 1925, were born in quick succession and brought up largely by their devout grandmother, ensuring they were all given a thorough grounding in Orthodox Judaism. Despite the political and economic turmoil of the times, Hermann's business enterprise thrived, and he was active in both German Social Democratic Party and Zionist politics. The latter affiliation was more common among the 20% of Eastern European Jews in the country than among their assimilated German-Jewish counterparts. Morris recalls that his father not only supported Zionism, but was keen to emigrate to Palestine himself, and was only dissuaded by his wife's attachment to Germany. The narrative of the early Nazi years after 1933 reflects some of the wider history, with an uncle in Bochum being severely beaten by Nazi thugs but there is no mention of the April 1st, 1933 boycott that affected so many Jewish retail businesses. In apparent contradiction of Nazi aims, Jewish businesses continued to operate and also profited from the general economic recovery after 1933 if they avoided the attention of Nazi zealots and anti-Semitic local government officials. While living in a town with only a few Jewish families and thus easily identifiable by local Nazis, the Schnitzers do not seem to have fallen victim to the low-level discrimination and persecution suffered by so many of their co-religionists in 1933 and 1934. Over time, however, the discrimination did increase. Morris remained at the gymnasium, the high school, in Gelsenkirchen until 1937, when anti-Semitic pressures forced him out and he joined his younger brother at a Jewish gymnasium in Berlin. This movement from towns and villages to the anonymity of a big city was a common response from many Jews after the increased street violence across the country carried out by the SA in the early spring and summer of 1935, the imposition of the Nuremberg Laws after September 1935, and the increasing pressure for the Aryanization of Jewish businesses thereafter. 
In Berlin, Morris felt safer and reacquainted himself with Zionism. By this stage, it was becoming clear that conditions for Jews in Germany were only likely to worsen. Like many of his co-religionists, Hermann was torn between his loyalty to the country, holding on to his material possessions and refusing to be intimidated on the one hand, and the realisation that exile might be the only long-term option on the other. These were common enough emotions among the many Jews who thought of themselves primarily as Germans and who could not understand the regime's sustained programme of discrimination and the unpunished violence of its supporters. Hermann rejected an offer of help to resettle in Australia in 1935, but there were plans to expedite the emigration of their children as soon as possible. In the meantime, one uncle had already left for Palestine and another was deported back to Poland with his wife and youngest son presumably in the Aktion that took place in October 1938. This was a major watershed for many of the country's Polish Jews and was prompted by the Warsaw government attempting to strip them of their nationality, which led the Gestapo to round up and expel some 18,000 people to the Polish frontier on the night of October 28 and into the morning of October 29, when around 8,000 were denied entry and left in no man's land near Zbaszyn, with neither Germany nor Poland willing to accept responsibility for them. For Hermann Schnitzer's immediate family, the so-called Kristallnacht, Night of Broken Glass, pogrom, on November 9th to November 10th, 1938, was the watershed, as it was for so many Jews in Germany. Although Morris and his younger brother saw little of the immediate destruction in their part of Berlin, a frantic phone call from their mother brought them home to the charred ruins of the family business and their immediate arrest, a fate that had already befallen their father. Across the country, At least 30,000 male Jews were arrested in the hours and days after the pogrom and taken to concentration camps, primarily Dachau, Buchenwald and Sachsenhausen. In the days and weeks that followed, Rosa Schnitzer worked tirelessly to obtain her husband's and son's release, a feature of this period where male heads of households had been arrested en masse and the role of decision-maker passed to women whose traditional role was in the private sphere. With her active involvement in the family business, Rosa was perhaps more prepared than most of her contemporaries for this new and unaccustomed role. Her sons had not been sent to Sachsenhausen because it was already overcrowded, and the younger Edmund was released after two weeks, possibly on account of his age. Morris followed two weeks later, but only after his mother had arranged a place for him on the so-called Kindertransport. After the British government had agreed to waive certain entry requirements for unaccompanied Jewish children in the aftermath of Kristallnacht, Geertruda, or Trus Weissmuller-Meyer, a Dutch social activist who had already been involved in getting children out of Germany, was recruited by the newly formed British Refugee Children's Movement to negotiate the first mass transport with Adolf Eichmann in Vienna. Ultimately, the organisation managed to evacuate more than 10,000 children from Germany and Austria, with most of them going to the United Kingdom. Smaller numbers were taken in by France and Belgium, while Maurice Schnitzer was one of around 1,500 children who were selected to go to the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, the children were supported by the Dutch Jewish refugee organisations, but under the overall control of the Dutch authorities, whose attitudes towards them were little better than sufferance. Maurice and some of his contemporaries were something of an anomaly, as the Dutch had been expecting small children rather than adolescents. As a result, they were moved on many occasions and closely monitored. Internment camps, quarantine camps, disused orphanages and out-of-season youth hostels were all used as accommodations. Here he stayed until war broke out in September 1939, still able to write and even telephone his parents, 
and occasionally visiting an aunt in Maastricht, but otherwise kept in complete idleness. It was this aunt who attempted to get the rest of the family out of Germany by sending a car to collect them. But Hermann, now released but ill and weakened from the treatment meted out by the SS concentration camp guards, stubbornly refused to leave without proper authorization, and the scheme collapsed. Like many of his co-religionists, he saw his patriotism and military service as touchstones that would somehow protect him, despite what he had seen and experienced in Sachsenhausen. It was more than a year after his arrival, and after war had broken out in Europe, that Morris received residential status in the Netherlands and was freed from the internment system, but only on condition that he enrolled in the Mizrahi Zionist Training Institute, Hashara, based in the Frisian town of Freinecke. As had been the case throughout the 1930s, the Dutch authorities were keen to expedite the re-emigration of as many refugee Jews from Germany as possible. From there, Morris was sent out to farms to learn agricultural skills that would qualify him for entry to Palestine as a settler, but, like many of his contemporaries, his urban upbringing left him ill-prepared for agricultural life. Nevertheless, he stuck it out even after the German occupation of the country. On hearing about the invasion on May 10th, 1940, and fearing, like so many other Jews, what German rule would entail for them, Morris and a fellow trainee fled Franeker with the intention of reaching the North Sea ports. However, they never managed to join the throng of people jamming the roads and besieging the ports of Amoden and Rotterdam in the chaotic days that followed. Cycling westwards, but without their identity papers, they were soon apprehended by Dutch soldiers who assumed they were German fifth columnists. Imprisoned with known Dutch and German Nazis, the two were then liberated by the advancing Wehrmacht, congratulated on their survival and given a free ride back to Amsterdam. Arriving in an almost deserted city, they behaved in much the same way as the rest of the Dutch population. After the initial shock of invasion, there was a rapid resumption of everyday life as people returned home and resumed their jobs. Morris and his friend returned unmolested to Franeke, where their agricultural and religious training continued. In the first months, there were a few anti-Semitic measures enacted by the incoming Germans, but Jews were forced to register and were expelled from government and civil service positions. In February 1941, disturbances in Jewish quarters of Amsterdam, instigated by Dutch National Socialists, were met with local retaliation and a further German crackdown, which in turn prompted a nationwide general strike involving more than 300,000 people that lasted for two days before being suppressed. These events led directly to the creation of the Jewish Council in Amsterdam, but little of this had much impact on life in the training camp in rural Friesland. Perhaps surprisingly, links to the outside world remained intact, with Morris receiving a Red Cross card from his brother, who had reached England but was subsequently arrested as an enemy alien after May 1940 and shipped to Canada, where he was interned at the Fredericton internment camp. Morris took comfort from the fact that his brother, although interned, was well away from Europe and had, unbeknownst to him, also avoided the fate of similar internees on board the SS Arandora Star, which had been torpedoed and sunk by a German submarine on July 2nd, 1940. Less reassuring were the letters from his parents, now effectively isolated and ghettoised in Dortmund, Germany. Phone calls were no longer possible, but a censored mail system still functioned and Morris could read between the lines that his parents and youngest brother were barely existing, with no means of improving their situation. His peaceful existence at Franeke came to an end in October 1941, when the Germans, aided by Dutch police, mounted a raid and arrested all the trainees, using the excuse that they had been hoarding food. 
This was part of an action directed against German Jews who were required to register for voluntary emigration, as would evident when the Dutch Jews amongst them were subsequently released. Morris managed to escape with one of his comrades, and the two of them made their way to the Mizrahi headquarters in Amsterdam. Directed to the offices of the Jewish Council, they were told to give themselves up as the Gestapo had threatened to send all the trainees to Westerbork. This behaviour by the Jewish Council officials was typical of their responses to German demands, namely to exceed, lest something worse befall, om erger te volkomen, a phrase that would become infamous once the widespread arrests and deportations of Jews began in the summer of 1942. Appalled by their acquiescence, Morris received help from the Mizrahi movement to go underground, what the Dutch call onderdoken, and was initially hidden in the homes of wealthy Jewish families who probably thought they had less to fear or thought they could buy their way out of trouble. Without viable papers and on the run from the authorities, Morris can be counted amongst the first cohort of Jews in the Netherlands to choose illegality as a survival strategy. At this stage, the processes of exclusion and pauperisation of the Jews was already well underway, with a raft of legislation restricting their ability to earn a living. At the same time, there was increasing pressure on the Dutch unemployed to work in Germany, on pain of losing any state support for their families. The growing number of Jews deprived of their livelihoods could not be sent to Germany, but to make sure they did not get preferential treatment, they were confined to labour camps inside the Netherlands. Those incarcerated in this way became some of the earliest victims of the deportations that began in July 1942. The first call-ups sent to Jews in Amsterdam and elsewhere for labour service in the East were very soon replaced by nighttime German and Dutch police raids on Jewish neighbourhoods. Morris's experience of these raids, together with the shortages of food and increasing insecurity in the city, led him to find another escapee from Franeker who had an uncle living in Brussels and together they managed to cross the Belgian border. Travelling without valid papers, they seemed to have been extremely lucky in avoiding identity checks on the railways, but knew enough to cross the border on foot via the so-called Green Frontier to avoid the controls there. Once in Brussels, he and his colleague found refuge with the uncle and were able to obtain Belgian identity documents without much difficulty. Registration and control of the Jewish population in Belgium had been much less rigorous than in the Netherlands a function of limited SS presence there and little overt cooperation from the Belgian authorities in matters pertaining to the so-called Jewish question. The Jews also benefited from a nascent self-help organisation, the Comité de Défense des Juifs, which was linked to a wider non-Jewish resistance movement, the Front de l'Independence, on a front, with the former acting as an effective counterweight to the German-sponsored representative organisation, the Association des Juifs de Belgique. The story also indicates how resistance links to cooperative local government officials allowed fugitives like Morris and his friend to obtain ostensibly real documents that masked their Jewish identities. Continuing their journeys towards Switzerland through France, the pair made mistakes that might, under other circumstances, have been fatal. For example, carrying phylacteries and attending a synagogue service in Nancy where they stood out from the local congregation. However, They also developed a technique for minimising the danger in asking for help by going to church confession booths. By their own admission, this always brought at least a meal and sometimes advice on where to go next. This strategy served them well and they were able to cross unaided into Swiss territory, but here their luck ran out. Swiss policy towards Jewish refugees had always been highly restrictive but became positively draconian after the summer of 1942 although ultimately around 15,000 were admitted and interned. 
Schnitzer and his companion were unlucky, and instead of being interned, the two were conducted back to the French frontier, under threat that if they were ever found on Swiss soil again, they would be handed over directly to the Gestapo. Back in France, Maurice then tried to traverse the demarcation line into the unoccupied zone of France, where he thought conditions for Jews were better, but was arrested by a German patrol. Here again, he may have been unlucky in his choice of crossing point, as other locations were easier to negotiate, sometimes with the help of local government officials. Sentenced to three months in jail for trying to cross the border illegally, he was moved several times and survived beatings, starvation and deportation back to Belgium without his true identity being revealed. Freed from the notorious Saint-Gilles prison in Brussels, but with no contacts or knowledge of the city, he had enough sense to avoid the obvious trap of having any dealings with the Association de Juifs de Belgique. Maurice found his way to a non-Jewish Austrian couple he had met on his first visit to the city. In the interim, the husband had been arrested and the wife had become heavily involved in resistance activities and introduced him to the Witterbrigade, the White Brigade. This group had been founded as the Groesengroep in Antwerp in late 1940 by teacher Marcel Louet and had spread to other towns and cities, primarily in Flanders, organising demonstrations, publishing underground newspapers and sheltering Jews and other fugitives before becoming involved in direct actions against the German occupation. The group developed into a fully-fledged active resistance organisation with branches in various towns and cities. Morris joined the group in Brussels as an act of survival and to take the fight to the Germans. With little to lose, he became involved in all manner of armed resistance actions. Such activities engendered severe German reprisals, including the shooting of civilian hostages, something that made the armed resistance unpopular with the local population and made his group a prime target for the Gestapo. The group's plans to evacuate to England in February 1943 were foiled when their hideout was raided, although the idea that a group of 15 resistance fighters could actually be flown to England in early 1943 seems somewhat fanciful. The fact that he escaped and avoided injury is little short of miraculous, but his narrow escape precluded any further active involvement in the resistance and he was forced to go further underground. Here again, his Austrian resistance worker came to his rescue by providing a further contact that allowed Morris to escape into the countryside. Although the Comité de Défense des Juifs helped support some 12,000 adult Jews in hiding during the occupation, it does not appear that Morris benefited from this form of help, save perhaps for the provision of an initial placement. At a time when labour was in extremely short supply, farmers were always on the lookout for additional hands without asking too many questions. And so working for them became a common refuge for young Jewish men and women on the run who had no viable papers, but who did not look too Jewish. Not only in Belgium, but also in other parts of occupied Western Europe. In exchange for work, the job often provided food and lodging, something of great value for those without access to ration stamps. For the next 18 months... Morris worked on at least three farms, but conditions were poor and employers were keen to extract the maximum amount of value from their employees for the minimum outlay. Labourers living in were often accommodated in barns and outhouses and were seldom, if ever, invited into the farmhouses. Discontent could lead to fugitives leaving the relative safety of the farm and taking enormous risks in travelling and looking for work elsewhere, and many were captured on the road during the later stages of the war. Morris's last farm job highlights some of the contradictions of life on the run. The farmer treated him reasonably well and only asked him a couple of times for his papers, ostensibly only so that he could be legitimately registered as essential and thus not liable for forced labour in Germany. His employer was obviously well thought of in the locality, 
but also had connections with the Germans, and there were regular visits from the military commander in Liège. This of itself might have been enough to condemn the farmer when the Germans were driven out and the local resistance began meeting out summary justice, but he was saved by Morris's testimony that despite his links to the Germans, he had also been a rescuer. As in so many other instances, the distinctions between collaboration and resistance were seldom clear-cut. If anything, Morris's post-war history was just as remarkable. Travelling back to Brussels, he soon found work with the Allied occupation forces as a labourer and then undertook tests to become an interpreter. With fluency in German, French and Dutch, as well as good English, he was adopted by the Americans, testimony to the shortages of skilled communications personnel within 21st Army Group as the front moved into Germany. By his own admission, he was keen to take the fight to the Germans in revenge for the fate of his family, but was usually kept well away from the fighting. His role as an interpreter meant that he was involved in the interrogation of captured German service personnel, both Wehrmacht and SS. As he makes clear, this was done primarily to extract military intelligence rather than to investigate war crimes. Allied policy made distinctions between the German army and the SS, where the former were considered to have fought within the rules of war and the latter was seen as a criminal organisation and responsible with the Nazi party for atrocities committed by the regime. While this provided a convenient and perhaps necessary distinction for the Allies at the time, it meant that many soldiers were never investigated. This gave rise to the myth of the clean Wehrmacht in the West, which was only challenged several decades later. After the war ended, Morris became increasingly disenchanted with his role as a peacetime interpreter and had no desire to stay in Germany. Having been legally admitted to the Netherlands, going back there represented his best chance of re-establishing himself and fulfilling his ambition of going to Palestine. Returning to Franeker, he was able to obtain identity papers, even though he had been listed as dead by the local authorities in 1942. He was likewise able to obtain a new visa and access to ration cards from officials in Amsterdam. Ostensibly, this was a largely seamless and unremarkable process, but Morris's experience contrasts with the treatment meted out by the Dutch authorities to returning German refugee Jews in 1945, when many of them were arrested when they crossed the border and interned with Nazis and collaborators. Nevertheless, Morris did encounter bureaucratic intransigence when he failed to get permission from the Ministry of Social Affairs to marry a Jewish girl who was still a ward of court, on the grounds that he did not have stable employment. In fact, he had rejoined the Mizrahi movement, and later when he tried to obtain identity documents that would allow him to travel, on the grounds that he was not a Dutch national. In the latter case, he was able to persuade the police that if they wanted rid of him, the documentation would allow him to leave, whatever the rules were. Many Dutch-Jewish survivors of the Holocaust chose emigration to Palestine after the war, their experiences at the hands of the Germans having been compounded by the uncaring attitude of the post-war Dutch authorities and a resurgence of anti-Semitic undercurrents in the country. Maurice Schnitzer would almost certainly have made the same journey had it not been for the persuasive talents of his brother and his strong desire to enhance and complete his education that brought him to Canada in 1947. His memoir is testimony to the myriad choices that those on the run had to make, often at very short notice. While undoubtedly making some astute decisions, as he himself acknowledges, his survival was also down to large slices of luck, and marginally different circumstances or decisions on his part could have had fatal consequences. Bob Moore, Emeritus Professor of History, University of Sheffield. 2020.